You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it on and open to Second uh, Peter chapter 3. Um, and, and I want you to, uh, to really look at how what we're going to focus on today is how Peter ends his letter. He's been writing on the themes of hope and holiness, and, um, and he's closing down the letter today. As we look at how he ends everything... Um, I'm reminded of when, when I'm navigating, do y'all remember MapQuest? Um, some of y'all, some of y'all old heads, like you boomers are like, I remember atlases, like when I had a book of maps, right? So I, you know, I, I've seen those things, but in my day it was MapQuest. You'd have to print the directions before you go somewhere. Man, you young people today, you're spoiled. Siri tells you turn by turn, you know. But even, even when we have like exact turn by turn directions with GPS, when I get to my destination and it says you've arrived at your destination, I've got to go like that tenth of a mile where I'm actually trying to figure out where I'm supposed to pull in or turn off the highway or whatever. And so I'm looking for an address or a number on a building or something like that. And when I'm doing that without fail, I always reach down and turn the radio down. Like as if if there's less noise, my eyes will work better somehow. Do y'all do that? It makes no sense logically, but I always do that. Um, and, and my wife makes fun of me for it. She's like, I like how you always turn the radio down when you're looking for where you're going. I'm like, yeah, because I got to see and the sound gets in my way. Um, but but it, <laughs> what Peter does at the end of the letter here is he gives clarity to the church of where they're going. And it's important for us to know where we're going. And let me illustrate it this way, is that in the same way that that I turn the radio down when I'm unsure of where I'm going, I drive a little bit slower, my foot is a little bit lighter um, on the gas because I don't know where I'm going. But if I'm going somewhere that I'm familiar with, like home or a friend's house or the church building here, something like that, then, then I don't turn the radio down and I keep my foot heavy on the gas pedal because I know exactly where I'm going. Um, in the Christian life, if we don't know where we're going, it's going to cause us to kind of slow and, and not actually be on target like we need to be. But rather, the Bible calls us to a familiarity of what God has promised us in eternity. That he's promised us eternal life. He's promised us a new heavens and a new earth. He's promised to take care of us. And so in light of the fact that we know Jesus is returning for his bride, that Jesus has died on the cross and risen from the dead and has promised us a great salvation, if we know that, then it leads us to actually live our lives in hope and holiness confidently. And this is how kind of Peter ends his letter is he's calling on Christians to persevere and to not slow down and to not give up and to not um, not be distracted from the task at hand. Okay, so I got three things I want you to see. We're called to live holy lives. Secondly, Peter calls us to know scripture and and read it and increase in knowledge in it. And thirdly, to stay faithful and persevere Um, in living holy lives. I want you to see. Um, what the Bible calls us to, because it's important that we have clarity on this. When Peter was uh, writing, he, he addressed false teachers of the day. And, and what he was addressing was a, a group known as the antinomians. Uh, the, the teaching is antinomianism. And it comes from a compound word in the Greek language, anti being the prefix that means against, and nomos being the root word there, which means law, against the law. And so what they had done is they had begun to teach that Jesus wasn't actually coming back. And since Jesus wasn't coming back, according to their teaching, that they could do whatever they wanted. They could live however they wanted. They could commit whatever sin they wanted. And so they were against God's moral law. They kind of disregarded it. And if that's one end of the spectrum, antinomianism, the other end of the spectrum would be legalism. 
someone who would say, no, we don't reject God's law, rather we adhere to it, and not only adhere to it, but we have to follow it perfectly in order to gain favor with God. Now, holiness exists in the middle of that spectrum. And so biblical Christians are not legalists. We're not saved by the works that we do. We don't go to heaven because we're better than everybody else. Rather, we understand that we've been given grace because we're jacked up sinners and Jesus died to save us. But we're also not antinomians. We're not against God's law. We live in holiness and we strive for holiness. We strive to put away sin because God has done a great work in saving us. So we want to live in a way that pleases him in a life of gratitude. Okay, so holiness is the balance. It doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean a different set of values than the world that we live in. Peter writes in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Now, he gives the justification or the motivation or the reason for holiness as being the fact that the world will be dissolved. Now, that seems like a strange motivation, right? If everything's going to be destroyed, then why would that motivate me to live a life of holiness? Um, it it kind of makes me echo the Old Testament preacher in Ecclesiastes 1.14, which says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. You see, the reality is, is that everything in this life that we attain or possess or acquire is temporal. Um, the writer of Ecclesiastes got toward the end of his life as an old man, and he said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything's useless. Everything's meaningless. But he used the phrase under the sun, meaning that temporal things will, will, will fade through our hands like, like sand. And, and, and what happens is, is we spend most of our lives, if we're honest, striving for things that are going to dissolve or pass away, Peter says. We strive for things that will ultimately not exist eternally, like your money that you build up. Your money is temporal. Your house that you live in is temporal. Your job is temporal. The hobbies that you love are temporal. Your kids' sports teams are temporal. Their sports careers are temporal. There's nothing wrong with these things, but as saints in a kingdom where Jesus has died to save us, we are called to set our mind on something higher than those things. Now, legalism would cause to reject those things and say, we don't practice those. They're evil. They're worldly. We're not legalists, but rather we're holy because we're called to understand them in their right priority, meaning that we can enjoy them and in the liberty of God's grace. But ultimately, we prioritize eternal things. What that means is we acknowledge that our souls live on for eternity. Our spouses and when we invest in our marriage, we're investing in our spouse who will exist forever. Your kids are going to exist eternally. So you make sure that you impart to them eternal doctrine of truth and the love of Jesus. The people that you work with, your job will pass away, but the people that you work with, they're eternal. The people that you enjoy hobbies and sports and pastimes with, those people are eternal. And so we use the things that will pass away as leverage to reach the things that will last forever. It's important for us to keep that in its right place. And this is why Peter calls us to hope and holiness. We hope in the return of Jesus and his justification of us and his ultimate redemption of all things and a new creation. But in the meantime, we walk in holiness because we know where we're going. We know our destination because when we know our destination, it impacts the way that we travel there. 
In verse 12, he says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter's point is after talking about the second coming of Jesus, he says that he's coming with wrath for all those who do not repent, who do not um, turn to Jesus for salvation. He's coming with wrath and just punishment for wicked sinners. Uh, but, but those of us who have turned from sin, not to perfection, but to um, Jesus, and, and our salvation is dependent on another, and if we turn to Jesus, we're longing for his coming. It says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, and everything is going to be dissolved again. Now, if all things are going to be destroyed at the second coming, where does that leave us as believers? Now, Looney Tunes has done a bad job of teaching us this, right? Looney Tunes has taught us that when Sylvester the cat you know, gets electrocuted or whatever, that he, his, his spirit kind of floats up out of his body and he picks up a harp and wings and he goes to exist eternally in the clouds. And so from that, we get a doctrine of heaven that is flawed and not biblical, that we all become babies and put on diapers and kind of float around in the clouds for eternity. That's not the picture that the Bible paints of heaven. The Bible's narrative is that we return to God's original plan, which was the Garden of Eden. That when you think heaven, think less clouds, more garden, okay? Um, and, and so what, what is coming is not a world like we see here that is filled with depravity and sin and the curse of sin, but rather a new heaven and a new earth. And so the new heaven is a, is a depiction of a new atmosphere and a new universe and heavenly bodies like planets and stars and things like that. And a new earth is where we will dwell eternally with God in a, in a physical world, not a fictional um, spirit world, but a physical, eternal being that God is going to bring with us. And listen, we've got some beautiful spots in West Virginia, amen? Like, we, we've got a beautiful state. If you have not explored it, I encourage you to do so. Uh, and I go out to some of these, these trails that we hike on and overlooks and things, and I see creation, and I just think, how can people deny God's existence? Um, last summer, I had the privilege to go to Colorado, and I went out on this ledge that Amanda was sure I was going to fall off of, and she was terrified. But I got out on that ledge so I could just see as far as I could and see the mountain ranges and see the beauty of God's creation and just thank to God. And, and, what, and what blows my mind sometimes is I cannot even fathom and imagine what the new earth is going to look like. If this one's so cool, what's the new one without the stain of sin going to be like? In 14, Peter picks up and he says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, this new heaven and this new earth, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. The Greek word that's translated into English is waiting in verses 12, 13, and 14. It's all the same word. Peter uses the same word three times. And this kind of waiting is not the bored kind of waiting that you do at the dentist office when you're reading crappy magazines and you're just bored and not really looking forward to what's coming next. Um, this is, in Greek, it means an anticipatory waiting. It means that we're waiting in anxiousness, not, not nervousness, but an excited spirit. Think, think Christmas Eve kind of excitement, that um, when we are anticipating the joy of gift giving and happiness and things like that, that is the kind of waiting that, that uh, Peter uses to describe the way we should be waiting on Jesus' return. And it says that we are going to be found by him. You guys remember 
Forrest Gump and Lieutenant Dan, right? Lieutenant Dan said, Gump, have you found Jesus yet? And Gump says, Lieutenant Dan, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him. And, and some of y'all maybe have found Jesus and some of y'all maybe haven't found him yet, but um, the reality is, is that Jesus finds us. And, and, if, and if he doesn't find you now, he's going to find you eventually. Um, and so, so whether, whether or not you've found Jesus, the Bible makes it very clear that he's going to find you. And, and I love that Peter uses that um, word imagery in verse 14. It says that we are going to be found by him. It's like Jesus is just going to show up one day, shoot, you know, like, um, and catch you, catch you doing whatever nonsense you do through the week when you're not at church on Sunday, right? Um, and, and, and this, again, brings us back to the idea that we should live every day in a way of joyful expectancy and anticipation, like that Christmas Eve type spirit of Jesus finding us, returning for us. And it says that when Jesus appears, that we should long for that day, us not knowing when it will be, to be a day where we are without spot or blemish and at peace. Like, like imagine if you lived every day where you could lay down at night, or you get in your bed at night and you're doing your bedtime routine type thing, and if you could lay down at night and you could just like lay there and just... Okay, I'm ready, Jesus, if you want to come back now. <laughs> like, like, live in a way where you could finish your day and lay down and not be ashamed of what you've done that day. And if Jesus showed up tonight, that you could say, I've lived my day at peace, and the peace of the cross has expelled the anxieties of the world, that, that the, the love of God has led me to abstain from sin, that I, that listen, I understand that I'm not perfect, but I have lived in a way today that I've tried to be kind to people. I've tried to show the grace and love of God to people. I haven't been intentionally hurtful to people. What if we lived every day when we get to our beds that we would be able to say that? Okay, Jesus, you can find me now at peace. I think if we did, we would probably find ourselves in a place of repentance more often before bed. <laughs> Because we would remember before we had our cup of coffee, all the cussing and carrying on we did, right? And we would repent and, uh, and do this as a, as a routine and a reminder that we would understand that we need Jesus every day. Matter of fact, we need him every hour. There's not a moment that goes by that I don't need the power of the Spirit to abstain from sin. I can't do it on my own. One of the, the main tools that we're given is Scripture. And so we live holy lives, and we do that. One of the ways we do that is by knowing Scripture. So we, we seek to know Scripture because it's important for us to arm ourselves against the temptations of the fallen world we live in. I saw a video uh, on Facebook of Super Mario, and it wasn't like Mario I played when I was a kid. It was like some computer hacker had like amped up Mario, and there were more turtles, and there were like the fireball swords that spin around. Have y'all seen this? And I watched it, and it cut, like my Apple Watch told me my, my heart rate was high because I was watching Mario, and I was scared for him. And, um, and, and this is like, this is kind of the way the world is, right? We've got temptations of sin flying at us. We've got the stress of our jobs flying at us, the stress of our families flying at us, like all these fiery temptations coming around us. How in the world are we supposed to keep it together? Well, one of the tools we're given is the sword of the spirit. In Ephesians 6, Paul gives us an outline of the armor of God. He gives us six things that we're to take up. Actually, five things we're to put on and, and one thing that we're to pick up. 
And the fifth thing that we're supposed to put on is the helmet of salvation. And then the sixth thing, which is not something to put on, but something to pick up, is the sword of the Spirit, which he defines for us, thankfully. He tells us it is the Word of God. Meaning that the Scriptures, the Bible, is, is God's inspired revelation to us. And he says, if you want to live a holy life, then here's where you find the tools to do so. Here's where you find the, 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 um, the equipping that you need to grow in grace and knowledge in Jesus Christ. That's why at New Heights Church, everything is Bible-based. From the singing, from the, the liturgy, to the preaching, to the way that we um, live in community, to the outreaches, everything is going to be on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ and his revealed word in the scriptures. We won't depart from that. It's a non-negotiable for us. It is the authority of our faith and practice for all of our lives. Because we believe it's God's revealed word to us. It's the sword of the Spirit. We acknowledge that we're absolutely helpless in this life. We're Mario in the hands of a toddler without the Holy Spirit. And so we put on the helmet of salvation and we arm ourselves with the word of God. That's Paul's words. And Peter mentions both of those things, the salvation of God and the word of God in verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, he says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. We've seen um, that, that if God will not be patient with us, we won't be saved. Were it not for God's patience, we would all be damned to hell. There's no chance for any of us if God's not patient with us. And so how dare we lose our patience with a world that doesn't know him? We're called to be patient because God has been patient with us. And so we count the patience of our Lord as salvation, this is a double entendre that Peter is, is pointing us to. He's reminding us of God's patience with us. So he's reminding me that I am a Christian because God has been patient with me. And then he's also reminding me in my evangelism as I share the gospel with people that I love that I'm to be patient with them as well. And he says, just as our beloved brother Paul, who also wrote to you according to the wisdom of given him. I want you to take note that that is an outside influence of the Holy Spirit, wisdom given him. In verse 16, he says, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. This might be a little bit like a humble brag for Peter. Like I write clearly, Paul's letters are a little bit hard to understand. Kind of like mine and Jeremy's blog posts. I won't say who's who. Um, but it says, which the ignorant and unstable, the false teachers that Peter's referring to, twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. There's a few important things here. First, I want you to see the false teachers are twisting scripture. Every week when I preach a sermon, my goal for you is to explain the clear and apparent meaning of the Bible. I don't want to twist it to give you something that's not there. And so if, if you're ever like, bored with the sermon and just like, Will ain't, ain't feeling it today. Listen, like it's not predicated on my ability to entertain you or my jokes to make you laugh. It's predicated on this is God's word. And, and sometimes it just won't feel as lovey-dovey as you might like, right? But you need to understand that it is good for us to be in this book every week. Okay, the second thing I need you to see is that um, there's great comfort here because Peter says some of the things that Paul was writing at the same time were hard to understand. There are times that I open the Bible and I read the Bible and I'm like, huh? Like it just leaves me wondering and questioning, like I'm unsure of what it means. 
Um, I, I think there's going to be some verses in Nahum that leave us in the same way. We're like, um, we take the hum in Nahum and we're like, hmm, I don't understand what the Lord's trying to teach us here. Well, thankfully, we're comforted by this when Peter says there are things in the Bible that are hard to understand. And that's okay because God, the author of the book, is so much higher than us. And the third thing that's really important for us to see is a, a phrase at the end of verse 16, when he's talking about the false teachers and they twist the scriptures, he says, as they do the other scriptures. And the phrase other scriptures is important because it shows us that Peter believed Paul's writing to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. He puts it on the same level as Old Testament Hebrew scripture that was inspired by God. And so it shows us that the apostles had an awareness that they were writing um, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means that the Old and New Testaments of the Bible, the 66 books of the canon, is authoritative, it's inerrant, without error in its original languages, and it means that the Bible is alive like it claims to be. And that's good news for us, because that's a good sword that we can pick up, church. That's a good thing that we can arm ourselves with to remain faithful. <clears throat> so the third point is to stay faithful. You see, patience... And God's graces is well and good. But what about when the going gets tough? How easy is it to persevere and remain faithful in this faith that we have as Christians when things aren't going so good? Or when our patience wanes thin? There's a woman by the name of Florence Chadwick um, who lived in the 20th century. And she was a, uh, she was a swimmer, world-renowned swimmer in her day, and she swam, uh, she set a world record for uh, women swimming the English Channel. Um, she set her sights on swimming from the shore of California to the coast of Catalina Island. And, um, and she attempted this in 1952. Now, this is a 26-mile swim. I can't, like, I, sometimes, like, at the deep end at a hotel, like, I can't swim from one side to the other. I can't imagine swimming a marathon. And Florence Chadwick goes to do this, and uh, they're worried about sharks in the, in the waters and things, and so they put boats uh, flanking her on, on both sides, and she began to swim, and 15 hours into her, her swim, um, she begins to get very tired, and a thick fog sets in, uh, prohibiting her from, from seeing very far in front of her, and she could just kind of hear the people that are over in the boats as she's continuing to swim. And again, she's over 15 hours in, she's exhausted. Her mom's in one of the boats, and she tells she ends up telling her mom, I, I can't go on, I need help, get me out of the water. So they pull her into the boat, she gives up, and when she gets in the boat, she realizes that she's less than a mile from Catalina Island, that she had swum over 25 miles. She was 25, 26 of the way there, and she had given up. And what's, and what's interesting is her determination led her to carry on, and she actually attempted it again, um, just two months later, she went back to training, did, did, did the whole routine over again, and two months later, she, um, she goes to, to swim the same 26 miles again, and about on the last mile, the same thing happens. A thick fog comes in, but this time she completes it, and when she gets to the shores of Catalina Island, and they congratulate her, and they ask her, what was the difference, and how were you able to do it this time, and her answer was, I kept a mental image of the shores of Catalina Island in my mind. So that even if the fog prohibited me from seeing it, I could see it in my mind. And this is a gospel reminder to us that, that as Christians, we have to have the end in sight as we march through life in hope and holiness on mission. 
We have to keep the end in sight. That Jesus has already accomplished your glorification. Like when the Bible writes of your glorification, which hasn't happened to you yet, the Bible uses it in the past tense. It's so sure that you can picture it in your mind as if it's already been accomplished because it's guaranteed in Jesus' atoning death on the cross for you. And so the new heavens and the new earth are a guarantee for you, Christian, that nothing can touch you, nothing can harm you, nothing can stop you from reaching the shores of glory. You keep that in our mind as we persevere to the end. And Peter, as he's writing this letter, is near the end of his life. He's getting ready to be killed and martyred for his faith. He's going to be crucified upside down because he counts his own self unworthy to be crucified right side up like his Lord Jesus had done. And he's he's, on his way to his execution. He writes these kind of last words, the last couple verses of this letter, the last recording writing we have from Peter. And he doesn't go to his grave with regrets. Rather, he goes to his grave like all the apostles do, calling the people they had discipled to carry on the faith that they viewed so great. In verse 17, he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. My grandfather, we called him Didhead, um, there's a famous story of, of a flood that happened on Trace Creek, and he was in his truck with, with a case of beer, and he got, in, he got in the water too deep, and his truck stalled out, so he just climbed up onto the top of the cab and sat there with his beer until somebody came to rescue him. And, um, and that was one of his, like, legacy stories. Um, but because of that, like, we were taught, and Trace Creek flooded all the time, but because of that story of Didhead, getting in over his head quite literally. Um, we were always taught like with, with great admonition, like you don't drive through water. Like especially when we were teenagers and first started driving, like if the water's getting high, like you don't know if the road's been washed out, you don't know how deep it is, like you just you don't drive through water. It's not it's not safe. And Peter's used the imagery of water already in chapter three. And I believe when he when he uses the phrase carried away in seventeen, I think he's referencing water again. And in the same way that that it doesn't take a lot of water to actually pick up a vehicle and, and carry it away off of the road, or in the same way that in floodwaters, you don't know if the, if the road's been washed away. Uh, Peter's warning the church to stay in the practice of the faith, to lean into the bride of Christ, to stay close to the church and not go into the waters of temptation. Because sometimes we fool ourselves and we say, well, you know, I've... I've got a four-wheel drive truck, and I can, I can get through this. Or we'll fool ourselves into saying, this, this, this little sin I have over here, this, is, this isn't really flood water type stuff. This is just a little bit of runoff. I'll take care of it. I'll get it taken care of. I'm working on it. I'll get, it. I'll get through it. Or we tell ourselves, hey, it's, just a, it's just a few weeks that I'm sleeping in or not going to church or not reading my Bible or not praying or not um, doing any sort of uh, Bible instruction with my family. It's just a few weeks of that. It's just a little bit. It's, it's not enough to carry me away. And I think Peter's making the case that these things absolutely will swell and grow and carry us away from Jesus. Not in the sense that we're going to lose our salvation. Don't misunderstand me. That's not what I'm saying. But in a sense that 
we might find that we were never really committed to him in the first place when we wander off into waters that we shouldn't be. And so he says, very carefully, beloved, take care. He says, take care in verse 17 that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. In verse 18, he finishes the letter by saying, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter's admonition is to grow. It's almost as if his indication is if you don't grow, then you're going to be carried away and swept away. It's almost as if the the water is rising, and if we don't continue our march toward heaven, it will come up around our necks and overtake us if we don't continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not a call for you to save yourselves. It's not what Peter's doing. Peter is saying, if you're saved, you will continue on this walk with us. And Peter walked until his dying day, until he's crucified for his faith. And he's saying, if you've really tasted the goodness and the grace of God, then you will grow with us. You will yearn for that growth. You will yearn to march on in confidence toward the new heavens and the new earth. You will go forward on mission and you will live in hope and holiness. This is what the Bible does. It calls us over and over again to examine ourselves and to see, like Peter says, to, to affirm our election, our calling, to see that we're really in the household of faith. And so Peter here has circled back to where he began the letter in the grace and knowledge of Jesus In chapter 1, at the beginning of the letter, he begins his salutation to the church by saying, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And so my prayer for us today is that the truth of the gospel of Jesus and his return would lead us to live in hope and holiness. That our lives would be radically changed by the fact that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. He rose from the dead to promise you victory and guarantee it for you. And there is coming with his return a new heaven and a new earth. That changes everything. That makes me reorient my life. It makes me prioritize things properly. It makes me lead my family in a way that places that at the forefront. And it leads me to share that with other people. And so as I'm sharing that today, if if you're on the outside looking in of that, if you've never repented and trusted Christ, I want to invite you to do that today. I'm not going to ask you to come up front or anything, but we're going to take communion in a moment. And if if you've never um, really repented and become a Christian, I want to invite you to communion, but only if you're serious about this. Only if this is a serious commitment. Only if you say, well, I want to do this and I want to do what the Bible says. I want to repent of my sin. I want to be baptized. And if if you make that commitment today, you're welcome at a table where Jesus says, this is my body represented in this bread and this is my blood represented in this juice. Find your salvation in the work of the cross, not in your own work. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.